Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We've come through seven, or rather eight, sessions where we did the anatomy of humility and how that accesses grace. From there we went on to seven sessions on indicators of pride to which God is opposed. So it was eight sessions on humility, seven sessions on pride, a combination of 15 sermons on fostering the attitude of humility and dealing with pride because God gives grace to the humble, like the children have said, and he will resist the proud. Okay, Those two sermons are available at the CD. I listened to the both of them in the week, and they've been tremendously a blessing to me as well. I listened to them in my car, did a lot of driving this week, and um, I was just listening to them, and God really again spoke to me through me. <laughs> As I listened, again, just re-emphasizing certain realities and dispositions I need to consolidate and foster. I really want to encourage you. Those two CDs are probably among the most challenging on that desk in terms of the CDs that we have taught, that I have taught, that see that you must get them. Our humility accesses grace and prideful indicators to which God is opposed. Okay. A spinner from that, we're now entering into the past two weeks, we discussed the issue of submission. This is the third and final segment on this issue of submission. I've painstakingly in the last two weeks taught you a range of principles governing the, the principle of submission in the kingdom. The Greek word is hupo tasso. Hupo means under, and tasso means to put in order. To put under in order. So, it's the idea of coming under another, submitting to a higher authority, because your being under that person is part of God's order. The kingdom is highly ordered. It's a structured, highly organized arrangement of life. The kingdom of God is. People respect order out there in the world. When you go to your workplace, you have a superior to whom you are accountable. But when people come into the kingdom... They seem to rebel against their thought that I need to be submitted to another. I need to come under in order to establish myself in a, in a context that is highly ordered. In order for the person to whom I'm submitted to put my life in order. Everyone say order. 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 Now I'm going to demonstrate, I, I spoke at length uh, of the, uh, several principles governing submission. One of them I want to just re-emphasize. It is this. The Bible says, but it gives more grace to the humble. Therefore it says, God resists the proud, but he, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. The next verse says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Okay, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. In the context of him, bestowing grace upon the humble and him resisting the proud, immediately James says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. You can never ever talk about 
the tension between humility and, and, and pride, the one recruiting grace, the one repelling grace, without cementing the disposition of submission to God. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. There will be no fleeing of the devil by your efforts of resisting him until you first are in submission to God. In the order of things, it's submit yourself to God. Number two, resist the devil. And what happens? Devil flees. Devil only feel flees if your resistance of him is borne out from the disposition of you being submitted to God. Submission is your authority in spiritual warfare. Your resistance against evil, an authoritative position, is born out of the disposition of being submitted. Okay? Last week, we, we, we did at length the case study of the centurion. Remember? The centurion soldier who wanted his slave healed. The servant is sick at home. But what does he say to Jesus? He stopped Jesus from coming into his home. He said, I'm not worthy for you to enter under my roof. But just stand here, because he said, now a centurion has a hundred soldiers under him. So he's a man of tremendous authority, right? Of tremendous authority. And Jesus says to him, stand here, speak the word. And the reason he gives is, he says, I too, like you, I too, everyone say too. He's drawing comparisons between his state and what he sees in Jesus. He says, I too am a man of authority. But he did not say of authority. He said, I too am a man under authority. In establishing his authoritative position, he references the degree of his submission. Ordinarily, you would expect him to say, Jesus, I too am a Roman centurion officer. I am a man of authority. He doesn't say that. He says, I am a man under authority. I say to one soldier, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. He said, thirdly, I even say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now you stand here, speak the word, and my servant at home will be healed. What he's saying of Jesus is, I'm not saying seeing your level of authority such that you can speak a word of healing here in the street, and my servant at home will be healed. It's not saying that. What he is saying is, like I too am authoritative because I am submitted under someone, I see in you that same, that same disposition. You can stand in the street, speak a word, because I see the submission of your life to your heavenly Father. Who'd like to be an authoritative person? One day I was speeding. The Lord has forgiven me about this, so don't judge me. <laughs> I was rushing somewhere. I was going to Bloemfontein. I was rushing for a conference. We were extremely late. Came down the hill, and this, you know these guys, they lurk in the dark from somewhere. I did not see him. Came out of the bush somewhere. Flagged me down. And he showed me the speedometer. I didn't contest. I knew. I said, no, no, it's fine. You know... And I, I explained to him why I was rushing. He said, no problem, it's fine, but he <laughs> paid a fine, you know. But if I drove past the man, it was a 
by comparison, this was a thin, weak-looking so-and-so. If, I had, if it got down to fivefold ministry, I would have had my way with him. But you know what I recognized in him? Once I saw that uniform, the badges, I saw not a man. I saw the authority the man possesses. Right? A police officer, when he says, stop, down. Irrespective of how the man is, the authority he wields, you bow to that level of authority. Right? When the centurion saw Jesus, did not see a Jewish great teacher, he saw in him this person has got the capacity to wield commands in the realm of spirit such that sickness can be cured. I bow to that. But he's referencing the fact that Jesus in himself too is as authoritative as he is because see how submitted he is to his heavenly father. Wife, submit to your husband. It's biblical order. Employer, submit to your employee. Or your employee, submit to your employer. It's biblical order. Colossians 3 speaks a lot about it. Younger men, submit to older men. It's biblical. It's biblical order. Spiritual son, submit to spiritual father. It's biblical order. If you want to be authoritative in your realm or sphere of influence, master the art of being submitted. When you say, I submit, what you are not saying I'm inferior to you. What you are saying is, I see in you a God-given authority to get certain functionality done. Certain things need to be done in an orderly fashion. So when I submit, I'm not saying that you are qualitatively better than me. My submission actually denotes a true comprehension of who I truly am. Okay? So I have no problems to take off my garments, Jesus did, and robe myself with the servant's towel and wash, lower myself in submission and wash the disciples' feet. Because the act does not determine the value that I attach to my person. I'm already thoroughly convinced as to who I am in God. And in a relational context, when God requires me to submit to another, my submission, I don't recruit value from my submission. My value is already established before I submit. My submission is born out of a representation of Christ in the other. Right? A representation of Christ in the other. So it says, wife, submit to your husband. How? As unto the Lord. When a wife submits to a husband... She's not submitting to a male headship. She's submitting to the representation of Christ represented in that order. The submission to a man, therefore, is actually submission to, to God. Don't see yourself as lowering yourself to an individual. So when Renee submits to me, she's really honoring God represent in me. Okay? Honoring God represent in me. Okay? Now, I don't want to continue rehearsing because we'll never get to today's study. <laughs> if you've missed out the last two weeks, it's two long teachings on various principles governing the act of submission. I think right now, submission is an act of spiritual warfare. You are as authoritative in the spirit to the degree that you are submitted. Yeah? You want to be powerful in spiritual things. 
demonstrate your, submit, your submitted life, the degree of your obedience, and I'll show you the authority that you could wield in realms of the Spirit. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, then he flees. Submission is an act of spiritual warfare. Amen? So, I want to speak today using Jesus' life, how that Jesus was a spiritual son to Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were earthly, well, not biological parents, but they were earthly parents placed by God in his life. Mary's womb was used as the incubator, the vessel, the receptacle that received the divine seed of God, and she gave birth to the boy. He grew up under Joseph and Mary's oversight. In his growing up, there are three descriptors that I want to draw reference to. Luke 2 and verse 40 says the following. Please, you must follow with me. Luke 2 verse 40. It says the child, everyone say the child. The child child grew. The word child here is a descriptive of somebody at least two years old. So the child grew to become strong and increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Everyone say the grace of God was on him. Right? Grace of God was on him. This happened to Jesus from, well, we can assume from zero, but at least from two years old to 12 years old, this would be the descriptor of the Christ child. This, this child is growing, he's becoming strong where? In his spirit, right? Becoming strong in his spirit, and he's filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Secondly, now that's verse 40, right? If you drop down exactly 12 verses, you land on verse 52. Luke 2 verse 52 says the following. And Jesus kept what? Kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor. Now the word favor here in the Greek is charis, which means grace. Favor is synonymous with grace in in the scriptures. It says here that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor or grace with God and with men. In a later study, I will demonstrate to you how this works. How, what does it mean to increase in grace with God and grace with men? Right? Just hold that thought for another session. What I want to reference here is the Bible says then, in reference to the grace of God in his life, he kept increasing. Everyone say kept increasing. Now, we're building something. So Luke 2, 40 says, grace of God is what? On him. Right? Grace of God is on him. He's two years old, and the descriptor is the grace of God is on him. Now, at 12 years old, everyone say 12. By this time, he's 12 years old, and the Bible says he keeps what? Watch uh, the, the, the Greek for increasing is prokopto. It means deliberately, consciously, with great effort, he cuts a way forward. It's like bush knives in his hand, cutting away through a forest. He wants to get ahead, right? Everyone say prokopto. pro-copto. Now you must prokopto. Come on, prokopto. Do your hands. <laughs> it's like effort. You see, growth in grace, if it's not 
aggressive and deliberate, it never happens. You, you don't mature in God by fluke. No one stumbles at a new place of strength and growth in God. Growth in God must be a conscious, deliberate, negotiated thing. If you don't put in the effort, nothing's going to happen. Right? So you got a pro-copto. I like this descriptor about Jesus. He says he was focused upon increasing in what? Wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and with, with men. So there's a deliberate, vociferous, violent, almost aggressive pursuit in grace. Come on, who's going to be violently aggressive about your growth? I want to encourage you. I taught you so much. Gave you so many keys about how to grow in grace. I want to encourage you. Start to apply it. Start to be diligent. Um, if you don't plan to arrive at a new place in God, you're never going to get there without deliberately focusing upon it. No one simply arrives. Right? Do you think we just woke up one morning and we were as strong or as spiritual as we are? No, things didn't just happen. It happened because of desire. Everyone say desire. What saddens me in the, local, in the global church is people have got no passion. What happened to the passion? What happened to the desire to wake up in the morning and pray? What happened to the love for God that fuels and, and the zeal of God that, that pushes and pulsates and propels a person? Right? Those things need to be restored. Jesus had this focused. So at between zero and 12, grace was on him. From 12 onwards, what does he do? I'm going to... You know the word prokopto, increased, means to deliberately cut a way forward. Come on, say it after me. Deliberately cut a way forward. If you get nothing from the study today, I want to impress upon you. Leave this church, leave the service today, saying in your mind, say to your husband and wife, your partner, we are going to carve a path forward. Deliberately cut a way of progress to receive more grace in the things of God. We're going to put certain principles in place, practice them, so that we don't. We have to get somewhere, and it's not going to happen with the present state of lethargy. It's not going to happen with the present state of, let's just cool, let's just, let's just lay back, what must be, must be, let's just waltz through life. No, no, no. I'm just, not, I'm just not waltzing through life. I know exactly what I want in God. I'm pursuing it with all of my heart. He sang the song. I love that song. One thing have I desired. David said that. You know, David was probably the most busiest man in Israel, wearing many caps. He was king. He was a warrior. He was a politician. He was an advisor. He was a psalmist. He was a musician. Uh, he was multiple things. Busy, but he said, one thing in all my busyness. I will not negotiate on. One thing have I desired. Right? Um, he says, early will I rise. Psalm 63, the song. Early will I rise and I will seek you and inquire to see your glory in the sanctuary, he said. You know? Everyone say one thing. Right? Now let's read John chapter 1 and verse 14. Quickly. John 1, 14. John 1, 14. John 1.14 says, 
The Word became flesh, the Word dwelt among us. We saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten as from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. 16. Of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. So what you see here, when you read John 1, 14 to 16, He is 30 years old. He is 30. When John, just, when John saw Him, He was 30. John the disciple. Right? John writing this says we beheld his glory full of grace and truth between 0 and 12 grace watch grace is on him from 12 for the next 18 years from 12 to 30 he's deliberately cutting away forward growing in grace everyone say growing in grace growing. say increasing in grace that's what the Bible says he increased in grace by he was 30 he was so full of it there was nothing it, it resided in him to such a degree that it filled every space or every um, vacuum, every capacity he had to accommodate all of it in its entirety. It consumed him such that an observer says, we saw his glory. What we saw was a 30-year-old male, Jewish male, on the planet, full of whatever God is full of. This male was full of stuff. Full of grace, yes? Now, my issue is, if that is true of him, why can't it be true of me? Tell you never get to 30. 30 in the Bible denotes, symbolically, maturity. Grow up, in other words. Most of the church wants to go up, but few want to grow up. Right? I want to encourage you to grow up. There's a verse. Let's read it. Can we read it? Between verse 40 and verse 52 is the key to everything. Let's read from verse 40. Right? Between verse 40 and verse 52 is the key of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let's read from verse 39. How many of you love the word? Yeah? As we read the Bible, read it with great interest. Because you love God and you love His Word. Okay? When He had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that He turned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Right? The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was on Him. Now His parents went to Jerusalem every year, to the feast of Passover. The, a good Jew would have practiced annual migration. Jesus, do you know Jesus would have, by all accounts, growing up in Nazareth, would have made annual journeys by his parents to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the feasts. Right? Then it says, And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the, of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, they stayed the full. They wanted, I like, I like these parents. Right? You see, they have oversight over the Son of God and they submit the Son of God to spiritual downloads that were instituted by God available in their time and context. The full number of days. The boy, everyone say the boy. See the little boys that performed here? Jesus is about 12 years old. Don't think of this big male. He's 12 years old. He's a, he's a boy. He's a lighty. 
right? He's a boy and he's with parents at the feast, right? And the Bible says, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him, they presumed, presumption, supposition. They supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him amongst their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem for, uh, sorry, looking for him. How many days have passed? So they leave him in Jerusalem. They're going back to Nazareth. Only after traveling a day's journey, hey, where's the boy? We thought he was with the other relatives in the caravan. He's not here. So a day has passed. So you go back. So how many days? You go back to Jerusalem to look for the boy. Two days have passed. You haven't seen the boy. <laughs> then it says, Then after three days they found him where? In the temple. So in Jerusalem they're looking for another three days. Where is the boy, 12-year-old Jesus? Right? They look left, right, and center. Last place they look, which would have been the first. They look in the temple and they find him there, right? Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. Watch, he's listening to them, teachers of the law, and he's asking questions. Then it says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Don't play with Jesus. He listens, he's probing, he's asking searching questions, and he's providing answers. He's bamboozling the religious order of his day. The most astute rabbis are teaching in the synagogue. Here comes this boy with the wisdom of God. There's some things he's searching out, so he asks questions, and the teachers are amazed at his understanding and his wisdom. His, under, his, 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 his level of, of the capacity to answer with such wisdom and grace. Then it says, watch. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, you have treated us, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. He said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my, in my father's house? Some versions of the Bible say, I had to be about my father's business. Notice, your father, she says to him, your father, this Joseph, your father Joseph, and I were looking. He says, never mind that earthly father. I must be busy about my heavenly father's business. It's a contest of fathering going on here. Think with me. He's passionate to pursue the father's will. Mary comes to discipline him. Discipline him. Why have you treated us you know, they, I mean, Mary and Joseph are unimpressed by the fact that you've just bamboozled the greatest teachers in, re, in the religious order of your day. Unimpressed by that as a good parent. Now, you're already angry because you're looking for him for five days. You haven't seen the boy. One day, two days, you come to the city, three days looking for him, five days have passed. Which parent would not be irate? I mean, my blood will be boiling by now. Right? Come on, talk to me. Right? Don't just read the Bible as a spiritual book. This is actual things that are happening here. Yes. Parents are, Joseph got the shambok out behind him already. Right? At the back of his, hiding it. Right? So, how do they advise him? 
Watch. How do they instruct him? Watch what the text says. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. A critical verse, which I will explain if time permits. They did not understand his statement, I must be in my father's house. I have to be about my father's business. There's a level of a lack of comprehension on the part of the parents, in this case, spiritual parents. Mary and Joseph are representations of spiritual parents in his life. Right? And I'll draw reference to this in a while. Okay? Let me just read the next verse. This is the punchline verse. Watch. This verse is key to, watch, 0 to 12 graces on him. 12 to 18, prokopto, increasing in the grace of God. 30, full of grace, released publicly to do ministry. The father says, my son, in whom I'm well pleased, at 30. What happened between 12 and 30? What happened for 18 years? This singular verse is one verse that describes Jesus' 18-year silent life in the Scripture. For 18 years, the Bible is silent about what Jesus did for the next 18 years. All we have, the only clue we have is this one text, and it says the following. He went down. Tell your neighbor, go down. (laughs) Nazareth was obviously at a lower altitude than Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Zion, was at a high point. Hebron being the highest point in Palestine. Then you get Jerusalem or Zion. But Nazareth was always altitudinally lower than Jerusalem. So I love, this is simply not describing the geography of the land. This is symbolically, spiritually describing for us the humility of Christ. Question, come on, talk to me. Was he ready in his mind to do his father's will? How old was he? Come on, talk to me. What is 12 representative of? The apostolic. You know what God spoke to me? The present expression of the apostolic, 12 years old, thinks it's ready to proclaim and to do the Father's business. God spoke to me very clearly, but this apostolic season has got to go down, to re-emerge. Humility and submission, subjection has got to characterize the movement now. For God to raise it up to maturity at 30, then the world ain't seen nothing yet. You see, God had to press the pause button in Jesus' life. Things were going too fast. Jesus was ready to go. I must be about my father's business. I must be. I'm apostolic. Don't you know I'm apostolic? I am 12 years old. Governmental authority rests and rests with me. Right? But the father says, okay, let's just pause now. No problem with your zeal, but pause the button. Things are not going to proceed from this point onwards until you learn certain lessons. The lesson to learn is this. Again, I want to to re-emphasize. One verse describes 18 years. One verse. This is the descriptor of the character of Christ for 18 years. He went down and he came to Nazareth. And he continued in? Everyone say subjection. The word subjection here is submission. It's the same Greek word, hupa tasso. He continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all of these things in her 
heart. And then we get verse 52 that says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, in stature, and in grace or favor with God and with and with men. Now, Joseph and Mary are representations of spiritual oversight in the life of Jesus. Joseph and Mary are representations of spiritual fathering in the life of the divine son. Please remember this. Jesus is both the son of man and he is the son of God. Two phrases in the Bible. The son of man references his humanity. The son of God references his divinity. Remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked them, he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? They said, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're John the Baptist. But who do you say? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The question is, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Peter said, son of God. He saw, the question was, from Jesus' perspective, what is people's view about my Jewishness? What is people's view about my humanity? I'm the son, and you can trace my lineage back to earthly parentage in Mary and Joseph. You actually trace it right back to David. Because Joseph was from the tribe of Judah, from the Davidic line. Uh, Joseph, the, the biological father of Jesus, hailed from that heritage. So he had human heritage. He was the son of man. Right? Now, as a son of man, he needed to submit his life, watch, to spiritual parentage in order to put his humanity in proper order first before the resident inherent power and nature of his son of godness, the divine son, could come to the fore. He had to submit his humanity to earthly parentage for them to put it in proper structure and order before the resident potential of his divinity in the fact that he was son of God could come to the fore. Right? He's both the son of man and he's the, the son of God. So Mary and Joseph shut the program down. They shut the Bible study down. They say to Jesus, close shop, this meeting comes to an end right now. Pack up, we are going down, bro. <laughs> Tell your neighbor, it's time to go down. And you thought you were down <laughs> with all the teachings we did so far on humility. I, uh, the Lord's been saying to me, Randolph, how low can you go? How much more humble do you need to be? The Lord said to me, you've taught much on humility but now i want this humility to be expressed to be practicalized by an act of submission lower yourself watch what is submission in this order i love jesus's response eh? the bible says watch when they suggested this to him he um he says and he subjected himself it does not say they subjected him he says he, I mean, he didn't rebel, he didn't throw his toys out the cot and say, but Mary, you of all people should know the angel told you 
who I am. Before I was even born, the angel said to you, the thing that is conceived in you, Mary, will be the holy child of God. Call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. He did not watch out of a desire to fulfill destiny, rebel against the counsel of spiritual parents, even when those spiritual parents were, did not understand the things that he said. Did not understand the things he said. You know, when your spiritual father does not fully comprehend the fullest ambits of your destiny, and you feel you're ready to go, and somehow you feel they're putting the pause button. They're not releasing me. They're not launching me. They're keeping me at bay. Do you know, in those instances, there's two views here. Sometimes God can use the lack of full comprehension of a spiritual father in his oversight of a spiritual son to test the heart of the spiritual son. Right? Now, let me just demonstrate this. Or, but the other flip side is spiritual fathers should keen, be keenly aware of the details regarding the will of God of their spiritual sons in order to guide the process. Right? There's two things. Now, let me illustrate this with Jacob. Remember Jacob and uh, Isaac? Isaac had two sons, not so? Yes? Who were they? Jacob and Esau, the twins. Who was born first? Esau. Who came out of the womb first? Esau. Who's first born in the flesh? Esau. Who came out second when they were birthed? Jacob was born Holding Esau's heel. That's how the boys were born. So Esau came out first. Jacob came out second, grabbing the heel of his brother. That's how they were born. At the point of their birth, a prophecy went out. Remember? The prophetic word was this. The older will serve the younger. Right? Who is first born from God's perspective? Jacob. Although he's second born in time, he's first born in rank. Right? You know, very important who's first born in Hebrew culture. Whoever is born first, especially if it's a twin case, first born gets the right, the birthright of the father. The first born gets double portion of the father's estate upon the father's death. This is a very important issue here. Right? First born. Do you remember, what does Jacob's name mean? Trickster, supplanter, heel grabber. That's how he was born. He, he wants that firstborn status. Right? But remember they were in the field when they were old and they were men. And um, he was hungry. Rather, Esau was hungry. Jacob was making some stew over a fire, pots of lentils. And um, his brother said to him, I'm hungry, give me something to eat. The conniver in him rose up and said, Well, if I give you something to eat, what do you have for me? It's tit for tat. How about that? Right? It's, it's not something for nothing. Not mahala here. Right? If, if I give you some stew, give me, and Jacob asked him, Give me your birthright. Give me the right that you have to daddy's fullest blessing, and dad's fullest estate. I want that. And what the Bible says, Esau disesteemed 
his birthright. Lowered his value for, a, for temporary, sensual, carnal, fleshly gratification of flesh. He traded something valuable, spiritual, for the satisfaction for his hunger pangs. The Bible says afterwards, um, now in the course of time, Isaac is old and almost blind. And the time came for the father to lay hands on the oldest son and to actually by practical prayer and blessing impart the birthright. It was done like that. It was, they would, boys would wait for a point in time. Remember, birthright blessings are only activated upon the imminent death of the father. So he's old, he's blind, he's about to leave, exit this life. Isaac calls for Esau. Now you might say, Isaac, how you are blind, I know that, but how can you be so spiritually blind? Should not you be calling for Jacob? Because you were there when the prophecy went out at the birth of the boys that the, the older will serve the younger. Isaac, you were there, so you know that Esau is not firstborn. Jacob is, right? And you know when Jacob heard that the father is calling for Esau and not him. With, with help of his mom, they connived again. And he impersonated his brother. He was smooth skinned. His brother was hairy. So he got some goat's hair and he, and, and he put, put it on him. Changed his voice to be like Esau. His father's blind. So he can't hardly see. He can just feel. He kneels before his father. And um, Isaac is not fully discerning. Or is he? Right? He said, it feels like the flesh of Esau. But it sounds like the voice of Jacob. And he lays his hands, I give you, I impart to you the, the double portion blessing of all I represent. Never ever in the Bible do you read, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Never. It's always, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be the recipient of the, the, the inheritance of a whole body of patriarchal prophetic destiny. He'd be given to him to steward in the earth, not Esau. Esau forfeited his birthright by disesteeming it and selling it. Oh, by the way, the Bible calls Esau was a fornicator. He was a man of the flesh. By, by, his, by his carnality, he, he forfeits the privileged position of receiving the father's double portion of his estate. Okay? You see, so the conniver had to deceive again. Now for this purpose, watch, for this, for this, for this act, the anger of Esau wells up against his brother such that Jacob, listen, this is very critical that you understand this now. Jacob has to leave Isaac's household. He has to leave father's house, exile himself, self-imposed exile, runs away from his brother to Uncle Laban's house where he would spend the next 20 years of his life. In serving Uncle Laban, he would acquire two wives, Rachel and Leah. Those two wives, together with their concubines, will, he would father through those girls the 12, well, 11, but ultimately 12 sons, which formed the basis of the 12 tribes of the nation of 
Israel. So what's happening here? A nation is being formed in the man. Please bear with me. A nation is being formed in the man as he goes along. He could have harbored rebellion in his heart, saying, if only my spiritual father Isaac was more focused on the prophecy, I would have not had to have done my own thing to get that blessing. Yeah? Do you think, do you think uh, uh, Jacob thought, I think he must have thought these things. How dead? How can you call Esau to bless him? Because you were there when the prophecy said, he's going to serve me. I am first one. I, if anyone is deserving, it's, it's me. Sometimes spiritual sons get frustrated over the fact that spiritual fathers are not um, focused enough, are not uh, detailed enough in their fatherly oversight over the affairs of my destiny. And at times I'm suggesting to you that God permits that in order to test your heart. Just to test your heart. Your heart. You know, come on, don't look at me so spiritual now. Haven't you said this in your heart at some stage? I've been to this. If my father could just tell me exactly what to do. Sometimes I'll ask him a question and he would, he would answer me with a principle. Now you take the principle and apply it. The answer is not definitive as it's this or that. He's given me guidelines in which I must navigate the will of God. What he's teaching me? Learn to hear God. I will give you the parameters, but negotiate your way through. Right? Negotiate your, your way through. Right? Now, listen carefully. You see, I believe Jacob should have done this. When Isaac called for Esau as opposed to him, he could have just gone with the process. Do you know, I believe all prophecies will come to pass and they don't need your manipulation of them to come to pass. You don't need to manipulate the process carnally. Now watch, many people feel that the end justifies the means. What's Jacob's end? Come on, say firstborn. What's Jacob's end? Jacob said, say birthright. Now he sees it about to be enacted. What does he do? He says, I will get it irrespective of how I get it. It's not the issue. I will use deception. I will use lies. I will impersonate my brother. I will trick my father into thinking I'm the other son. I will do what I have to. I'm after that birthright. Right? You see, I want to encourage you, do not meddle with God's process for you. If you meddle to get what you think you deserve, but you're using spurious, unacceptable means to attain it, you will go on a 20-year deferment period. For 20 years, Jacob was outside the house of his father. And who was he with? Uncle Laban. You can't be fathered by an uncle when God has put a father in your life. Most often, a father, if he's truly led by God, sometimes God doesn't allow him to fully comprehend the magnitude of all, all the parameters attended with the son in order to check the son's heart out. Now, if anybody had license to rebel, it would have been Jesus. Yeah, he's saying to them, did not you guys know? What he's saying, of all people, at least you guys should be aware of my calling. Right? So I must be about 
father's business. The next verse says, the parents did not even comprehend or understand what on earth is he saying. All they say to him, close shop, let's go down to Nazareth. Let's go down to Nazareth. The Bible says, he said, no problem. I'm willing to contain my zeal. I'm raring to go. I'm 12. I'm apostolic. I'm willing to close shop. Listen carefully. Be willing to embrace the higher principle. The higher principle is not doing the Father's will. The higher principle is, will I master the art of subjection? Will I master the principle of? Hupa Tasso. And the Bible says, and he subjected himself to them. How long? Come on, I told you. 18 years. What's 18? 6 plus 6 plus 6. What is 6? The number of man. What is 3? 3 times 6 is 18. 3 in scripture is completeness. Something solid and substantial. So Jesus allowed Mary and Joseph to bring his humanity to completeness. To put things in, in order. And he subjected himself to them. I, I literally, literally believe this. If Jacob had, had simply not took matters into his own hands, he would not have deferred the will of the Lord for his life for the next 20 years. I still believe somehow he would have acquired Rachel and, and Leah. I still believe all those things would have happened. You know, God is patient with you. I want to speak to you very seriously now. Please listen very carefully. God's been patient with some of you. Very patient. You're deferring things and you're going on a 20-year deferment process when there are certain realities that should be affected now. Right? Because you fail to submit to the processes of the Lord. Do you know? Okay, you worked for seven years for Rachel. Remember the plan? Okay, he marries the wrong girl. I don't know how you got that right. You see, his father-in-law deceived him. He deceived his father his father-in-law deceived him. What you sow comes back to you. Every spurious, I want to say this to all in the house, every spurious wrong thing you've done in misrepresentation, lies and conspiracy. Uh, this is serious to everybody. Unless you repent before God of it in the future, it will come back to haunt you. Yeah. So tell you never repent now. I say this seriously with, with deep conviction in my heart. I'm saying, I don't want to live life having these skeletons in my cupboard where I've wheeled and dealed and dumped something subterfuge out of the view of everybody and think, and think, I can still rise up and function as normal. Right? What you sow will, you will reap. But I'm here to say, if you repent, the grace and the mercy of God will redeem you completely. Amen? Just repent of these things, right? Do you know what Jacob said to, to, not Jacob, his uncle Laban. Do you know what uncle Laban said to Jacob over the 20 years? Oh, by the way, you know that in a 20-year period, do you know how uncle Laban abused Jacob? He was exploited as a worker. His wages were changed 10 times by his father-in-law, his uncle. Hey? He was abused. After a 20-year period, the Bible says he woke up one day and he, this recognition like the prodigal son. 
I must go back to father's house. Right? I must go back to father's house. I love what Carol said last week. Remember the prodigal son? When he came to him, himself, what did he say? How am I going back to father's house? How? When he came back, he says, he even said, the servants in my father's house are better than me right now. And when he came to dad, what did he say to the father? He said, I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me one of your. What is the attitude with which he comes back? Humility, servanthood, lowering myself. You see, and let me just say this to you all. Some of you need to be reintegrated into the vortex of God's will for your life. But how are you going to re-enter? You're going to have to re-enter by servanthood. You're going to, re you're going to come back by submission. You cannot come back in pride. If the prodigal came back and said, Dad, I know I've messed up, but I'm here for my thing. Like these guys were doing just now, right? I'm here. I want that. In, I know I've messed up, but yeah, I'm back. No, he came back unworthy. I submit to anything you would require me for me, right? And the, the father saw that. said, no, no, no servant. Son, kill the fatted, that fatted calf we've been raising for the past 30 years. Kill that one. We're going to have a party tonight. Bring a robe. Put a ring on his finger. Reinstate him completely. He's reinstated because of the attitude of submission and humility with which he, he came back. How did Jacob come back? Here's the deal. How did Jacob rectify things? Okay? You know what the Bible says? One night he woke up. He didn't even tell Uncle Laban. Didn't even confer with him. He says, I'm going back to daddy's house. But there's a big obstacle to reintegration into daddy's house. Who is it? You know, the older brother is always a problem. Eh? When the prodigal came back, the older brother, not the father, the older brother was the issue. When Jacob wants to reintegrate in, back into Isaac's house, who now must he confront? Okay, come on. Is Esau still angry with his brother for tricking him? It's not just angry. You know, like you get compound interest? This is compound anger. 20 years ago, this happened. But with every day, I think Esau's anger just went up a notch. So it's coming back after 20 years. I want to show you the power of submission. Just watch. Listen carefully. This is Genesis 33 verse 1. You know, I love <laughs> Jacob's plan. Eh? The Bible says... Which wife did he love least out of the two? Rachel or Leah? Who was his first love? Rachel. Leah was second, right? Both girls had concubines. Right? Now, he's, he had met the Lord. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord that night, remember? And he saw the face of, of the Lord and he said, I want the blessing unless you bless me. What he's saying is, I know I accessed it through fraudulent means. But I'm, I'm not, I'm going to wrestle with you all night. And he said, I'm not letting you go. Until you bless me. You see, a blessing God through spurious means will never work. He now seeks to access it directly from God the Father. Right? And so he puts Leah's maid and her children in front. Then he puts Leah with her children. Then Rachel's maid and her kids. Then Rachel, and the Bible says, last he put Joseph. Benjamin's not born yet, right? The youngest son, the last boy, Apple of his eye, Joseph, who will save this whole family one day in Egypt, puts him at the back. And the Bible says he himself went before them all to confront his brother. Right? It's a showdown of notice. 
how many men has Esau got with him, ready to kill his brother? He heard his brother's guy. He got 400 valiant men, warriors, Esau with him, about to wipe out Jacob and his whole family. Right? It's do or die time. By the way, if Esau's anger prevailed, you wouldn't have a Messiah today. If that slaughter took place, the birth of Christ would have been aborted right there. Plan of God is at stake here for the whole world. Showdown, brother to brother. But you know what the text says? But he, okay, he arranges them, it says, but he himself passed on before them and he bowed down to the ground. Esau standing so drawn, ready to attack. Jacob confronted, the Bible says, he bows down to, to, to his brother seven times. One. Notice I haven't come to fight. I've come to submit. One. Two. Three. Four, bows down, seven times. Five, six, seven. What does seven denote in the Bible? Perfection. This, he perfects the art of submission to his brother. Now, the Bible says that Esau was a fornicator. Right? And the Bible calls Esau a godless man. How can a godly man, with all of his freckles and frikies, Jacob, how can he bow down to one who disesteems spiritual things. You see, I taught you, if you don't see what the other represents, you will fail to submit to the other. Right? Now, notice, I think, I hope I got the right text here. It's Genesis 33, verse 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Jacob says to Esau, No, please, if I have found grace or favor in your sight, Take my prayer. He had a whole lot of gifts and offerings to give to his brother. Take these gifts. Take these presents from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me. You have received me favorably. Listen carefully. Train yourself to see the face of your God in the face of your brother. Even when your brother is sometimes so far removed from God's nature and purposes. You see, I believe Jacob saw something in Esau that gave him hope. There was a residue of godness left in the man before he would eventually become totally godless. So Jacob says, I bow in submission to that representation. Esau forgave Jacob. And the Bible says they, they reconcile wonderfully. Jacob was planning to go on to further. You know what Esau said to him? These men that I've brought to kill you, let them go with you and they will personally protect you. Right? Never ever underestimate. I'm just hearing the Lord here. Never ever underestimate the potential blessed result that God is about to bring into your world when God requires you to engage in one act of submission to another in whom you see the face of God represented. I don't see your face, Esau. I see your face as the face of God. Yeah? Ask your neighbor, what do you see? Your reintegration back into your father's house. Let me leave you one more verse. Genesis 31 verse 30. When, when Laban heard that Jacob had left him, gone back to Isaac's house, first confront his brother and be reintegrated into his papa's house. 
The Bible says Laban pursued him, caught up with him about a day or two later. This is what the Bible says. Laban says to Jacob, Laban says, I have seen in you all these 20 years that you were with me. Not some days. He's saying, I've seen this in you every single day. These 20 years that you were with me, how you've longed for your father's house. You can be dislocated and have seeming measures of success in your dislocation. Because God did bless Jacob there. God's hand was always on him. But he knew, until I reconnect and align back to my father's house, destiny to the degree that God had determined will not roll itself out. It's amazing. You'll see, by the way, when Jacob came back to, to, to his father's house, one of the first things he did, he went back to Bethel. He called the place Bethel, which means what? House of God. And there he, he built another altar and called it El Bethel. God of the house of God or the mighty house of God. Right? You see, when you come back into the house of God and you reintegrate it into it by submission one to another and especially to fatherly oversight. The house of God for you will not be the house of God anymore. The house of God for you then becomes the strong house of God or the God of the house of God. Amen. Now coming to church is not simply to tick yourself present. Now pitching up on a Sunday morning is not just to show your face. Now it's saying, if I'm going to be effective out there in whatever God has called me to, be submitted to all the processes afoot with it. My destiny, my calling will roll out Hopefully, in my, in, my, in my allotted domain. Are you hearing the Lord this morning? Everyone say submission. submission. Naaman had to dip seven times in the Jordan to submit to a word for his, his leprosy to be cleansed. Jacob had to bow seven times to the face of God represent in a brother that wanted to kill him. And God turned the tide. If we don't see the face of God in the face of your brother, you will never be submitted and express submission to God such that the power of God will flow powerfully in your life. If you want to master authority, master the submitted life. Submission must be your buzzword now. The main thing, the thing. Bless you. Lift up your hands as we pray. Esau's army designed to destroy Jacob is now commissioned to escort him his personal bodyguard, protection. I submit to you prophetically, all of us today, listen carefully, with your hands raised, the Lord says to you all, my son, my daughter, if you only bow to the principle and my representation in the face of the other, the face of the other being your spiritual father and your spiritual brother, you will never come back to the house of your father until you embrace your Esau. He's also part of the house. He might be um, alien to the purposes of the house. But see the face of God in him. See the face of God in the face of your brother. Then and only then, thus says the Lord. This is the prophecy for you. God says, the fact is designed for your destruction. I will turn around for your protection. Those processes set by the enemy to kill off purpose, to kill your life, to kill uh, what God has in store for you, the Lord says, 
they will be preserved powerfully. Today is turning for us. It's a turning point in our, all of our lives. More than ever before, I'm saying to God, Lord, no matter what the cost, help me to submit, even mutually, mutual submission, one to another, not just to my spiritual father, but also to my brothers. Then I know purposes of the Lord will run swiftly for me. And so, Father, come and lift up your hands. And I pray, listen carefully, I pray that you will be obedient. In cases where your oversight doesn't fully comprehend various aspects of the will of God for you, but you still submit, the Lord says to you, He will see your heart and He will ensure the thing comes to pass. It will never ever be aborted in the name of the Lord. I bless you with the grace of God today. I pray great grace and peace be over you all, your families, in all your endeavors, in the workplace, in your business, in sport, at school. May the blessing of the Lord be upon you. May you be strong. May, may you be robust. May you be focused. May you be tenacious. May the favor of the Lord rest upon you. May your authority in Christ well up because of the degree to which you are submitted. I pray God will richly bless you with all things necessary for life and for godliness. In the name of the Lord. Amen.